It is a complete commitment to the bit. It is a complete commitment to what it's selling. It doesn't matter how excessive it may seem. It doesn't matter how stupid its lore and setting sometimes seems. It doesn't matter how ridiculously survivable its protagonist is. Modern action films often feel embarrassed by their, war their world and their lore. Feeling the need to cram in as much comedy as possible and constantly winking at the audience. Um, look at the MCU. Look at the lead writer for Netflix's Witcher series coming out against the books that she's fucking adapting. Look at this new Dungeons and Dragons movie where they hired the directors of the comedy film Game Night to laugh and snicker their way all the way to the silver screen. None of it is taken seriously. And that is why John Wick succeeds. It is complete commitment, it is excessive, it is ridiculous, and you take it all incredibly seriously because the movie takes it seriously. And I loved this movie. stream a film podcast i am matt and that is chuck and this is episode number one that's right folks we've got a new name new day of the week a reinvigorated gusto but it's the same old show we're talking all things theater and stream we've got the industry news you care about we're talking about all the things that we watched this week in the watch list we've got a non-film recommendation with the mentionable and we're picking the one thing and the one thing only that you should watch with the pick of the week. But that's not all. We're wrapping up this nice little package around a featured review of John Wick Chapter 4. And let me tell you, there's no better film to kick off our newly minted show. If you don't know the story behind our name change, I'll direct you to a video that we published on our channel last week. Because I'm not going to repeat it here. Henceforth, we are moving forward. Now, Chuck, for anybody that's jumping on board now or is looking for our mission statement, who are we and what do we stand for here at Theater and Stream? Well, Matt, in short, we are two film stops from the upper Midwest. And, you know, we're hobbyists, first and foremost. We're not here to make a buck. We're not here to shill a Patreon or a meal kit or, you know, razors. If, but in this day and age, it's probably more than likely like human growth hormone, like testosterone replacement therapy treatments. Yeah, I think that's what's in these days. But yeah, we're also not here to just give you whatever, you know, a corporation wants you to hear. You know, the, oftentimes we will not like the things that we watch, even though we, like Matt likes to say, we don't like to watch shit. So, because that's kind of the point. Like there's so much swirling out there, you know, in this marketplace. 
you have a streaming ecosystem, you have a, a theater environment that is gasping for air, and it's it's hard to know what is worth your time in either space. And we are doing the grunt work. We are putting our money, you know, where it counts. We are spending the you know, the money on the streaming subscriptions. We are buying these tickets at AMC's surge prices because we know that you want us to know. Should I even go to my local AMC? Should I go to my local theater and or multiplex and watch a movie when I can stay and watch it in the comfort of my own home? There's a give and take. It cuts both ways. And I feel like there's just not enough actually being said about which version of the cinematic experience is worth it. And if we're going to you know, explore anything on this show, it is unpacking that question and trying to make sure that you aren't wasting your money, you know, because we are in a sense, you know, because like we are the ones who are paying for Netflix and all the crap that they put out. But I think that kind of does it. I think it's time to talk about the news. Um, this initial one is you know, in line with that very thought. That's why I included this. Uh, I'm a big fan of the YouTuber uh, film at home, the films at home, rather, because he put out a video basically saying, hey, if you only have seen All Quiet on the Western front, on Netflix, you are doing like you're fucking up because apparently the 4K of this is so spectacular, and the side by side comparisons of the two, you know, is pretty stark. And I would recommend mm-hmm. that you that you just go and watch his video about that. But I guess is that a larger you know point you know that I guess the whole industry maybe should consider, you know, is is streaming really not as successful at giving a pristine and cl- you know clarified version of a piece of art or is it just the most convenient and digestible way to do it? Yeah. I mean, there's just, there's too many things that can go wrong with streaming. Like you, you have like these terrible glitchy apps. Um, you have, if you have like a, even for a second subpar internet connection, you start seeing all this grain and all this like these artifacts where the blacks look almost gray and it's like glitching out almost. And, um, you know, there's just too much that can go wrong with streaming movies. And um, I've always been a big proponent proponent of physical media. Um, you know, I buy 4K Blu-rays for any movies that I think are worth it. And I probably will for this movie. And I do think that a lot of times you are getting a subpar version of these films. Um, but then again, we live in a age where people are probably watching these movies on their fucking phone. So, I mean, do people actually care? Do most people actually care? Probably not. I mean, can you imagine watching John Wick Chapter 4 on your phone in like six months? Oh. I'm sure a lot of people are going to do that. It's agony. <laughs> but like, I'm just, yeah, like, in, what is it? Almost like 13, 14 years ago. I remember seeing avatar in a theater you know being you know totally blown away like everybody else and then seeing an ad for a samsung phone that came with avatar preloaded on it you know and like and just like how that was the hype and i'm sitting there like but can you even see it because yeah you're talking about a a smartphone in the year 20 now yeah 2010 at the time it's like there's no way it conceivably could give you anything as close to what the genuine article would be you know it's yeah, like we we can't be so precious, I guess, because people do just you know will just watch what they want to watch, how they can watch it, and that is you know just how it's going to be. And 
in keeping with that, how things are just going to have to be, you know, is that, you know, people can be bullshit artists and still, you know, wind up, you know, you know, getting bought by, you know, a major studio or a streaming platform. Because I guess I, I was totally, I had no clue that this was a thing. You know, you, you always hear, oh, yeah, some some guy created chicken nuggets and he never got any money for it. And it's like, OK, maybe that's the case. But now that there's a there's a, an entire movie out of where Flamin' Hot Cheetos came from. And, the, and it's and there's a controversy. What can you tell me about yeah. that? Yeah. So uh, for people that don't know the story, um, this guy named Richard Montanez or Richard Montanez, he um, about a decade ago started going around talking about how he was the inventor of the Flaming Hot Cheetos for Frito-Lay. And he like started saying this story so much that he actually became almost, like a public speaker. And he would go around to like schools and like um, like corporate functions and do like speeches about his success story, about how he was a janitor at Frito-Lay and he worked his way up the company and um, by inventing these flaming hot Cheetos. And apparently he charges like anywhere between $10,000 and $50,000 to do one of these speaking engagements. And in That's 2021 good fake, good fake business right there oh yeah for sure i mean he's he's making bank and he has a book deal now um with penguin random house to tell his story and of course he has this movie coming out now uh that is directed by ava longoria i believe it's starring um like matt walsh is in there and um dennis Haysbert is in the movie i believe but um in 2021 when this movie was announced the la times did a really really scathing expose basically saying that this guy is blind and nothing he said is true they interviewed a dozen other frito-lay employees um and the company itself uh released a statement that was basically like well we support richard's um success his version of the events are urban legend essentially wow it's uh <laughs> so that's a fascinating story in and of itself that's the movie like like that like like yeah. but that's the thing like we're, we're getting this movie produced by eva longoria <clears throat> that is going to be providing us the lie like the urban legend is going to be put out like truth and they're going to like act like it they have to act like it is true despite having because that expose from the the los angeles times is excellent journalism it is so in-depth mm -hmm. It is worth the read. And uh, yeah, this is just such a bizarre story. But to me, the real story is the movie. Like, how do you inhabit this lie for so long, you know, and then manifest it into reality and then have people openly be like, well, yeah, it's all bullshit, but we're still going to like let you make hundreds of thousands of dollars as a, you know, a paid speaker. Like he's Hillary Clinton or something like that. It's really bizarre. And I want to see that story. Yeah, you know, that would have been the smart thing to do. Um, but what they're doing instead is, you know, of course, Ava Longoria is a Latina and they are pitching this movie as a Latino success story. You know, a, a guy that worked his way up from nothing into something. And that's what I've heard, you know, people who have seen this movie now um, at the South by Southwest premiere last week um, are saying that's essentially what it is. It's basically, it's her pitch for sort of this guy who went from nothing to something. And so you're, you're selling, 
she's selling the bullshit and yeah, very, um, very, very well you know, yeah people are not you know taking it um uh, sitting down, I guess. But the the one thing I wanted to know about this movie, uh, I did some research beforehand. I'm like, you know, who's behind this other than her, of course? Who are these bullshit artists that are behind this movie? And I, I didn't have to look any further than the movie's producers. And when I looked at them, you know, of course, this movie involves... Um, uh, religious film grifters because the two producers on this movie are David Kern who is the producer of the faith-based movies Breakthrough The Star and Miracles from Heaven no and then, yeah and uh, Sa- the other guy is Samuel Rodriguez who did the uh, Christian faith-based movies My Brother's Crossing and Breakthrough and so that's that's the people behind this movie. So I mean, add that to the pile. You have these guys who purport to be Christians to to sort of uh, shill the Christian ideology on your silver screen, and they're they're involved with this. Like they're they're the bullshit artists, and it's just it's ridiculous. <laughs> these are the dudes who produce the movies that your like local like local Lutheran church will like host a screening for and it'll be like a major world premiere of this big Hollywood movie you know like in your local community will feel spicy for a second and then yeah. you realize what it's actually for yeah like fireproof is another like facing the giants was like the OG of those yeah. my family got that on DVD you better believe that god their, their involvement just mwah, makes it even more perfect and yeah we'll, we'll leave it there but I like I, like I said, I just want someone to like hack the movie up and then like insert like all the facts over top of it. Kind of <laughs> yeah. like it's um like pop up video. Pop up video. That, that that that's an idea. Steal that internet, go run with that idea for a, a YouTube show. But you had a really, really interesting little brain pan of a moment in the dock, and we realized there was an intersection between some things that we were going to, you know, include. Because on my local, you know, Facebook rant page, I I assume that other communities have these things. Or maybe you guys just use Nextdoor or whatever it's called. Mm -hmm. But on Minot Winers and Complainers 2.0, some lady popped up and she was just like, I am angry. I have been been exposed to drunk cats. And I won't be having it anymore. And America needs to be ready to you know, purge the, the sinners and non-believers. I don't know. She goes crazy. The text is up there. You can join the page yourself if you want to see all the spicy comments. Because there were a lot. But I, I, but I just saw this and I just I blew my top. I just couldn't believe it was real. But this is the community I live in. You know, like this is this is <laughs> North Dakota. But how did you? How did you throughline this to the topic of, you know, like, how can art survive in a modern world like this? It's like, if we can't even have Puss in Boots, what can we have? Yeah, so the the sort of title um, of this sort of segment is the reception of art in modernity, because... And we're taking this at a micro and macro level. And so Chuck has already sort of illustrated the micro level. And on the macro level, what we are seeing in in the last week or so is sort of people in the film industry, people in the film community 
that are sort of waking up to the fact that, hey, maybe we don't take art the best way in, you know, the, the current day. You know, maybe maybe we need to, it's not a healthy to, you know, call for people's deaths on Twitter when we don't like a movie or, or to dox people or, or to um, say you're gonna kill someone's children or, you know, maybe we don't take it so well and uh, take art so well in modernity. And so there's two other stories that kind of intersect with this idea. And that is at South by Southwest, Julia um, Durkinu or Durkinau, however you say her last name, the film director of Titan was doing a panel where she basically was asked about the state of the film industry um, as far as these conversations people are having about the death of theaters. And she took the question in a completely different direction and basically said, you know, I'm not so much concerned about the death of theaters. I am concerned about being canceled, like because of the movies that I make. And um, people seem to think that the the movies I make are a, a reflection of me in real life. And they think that I want to like fuck your car for some reason. And I don't. And, um, and I don't want to eat you either. And she's really concerned about, you know, the idea of... Um, just the the art that you make could cancel you as a person nowadays and i don't know do you want to take you want to take it from here what, what did you think of this you know it on, on the one hand i'm you know i'm proud of her for coming out and saying this because like she is just the the dummy mommy of transgressive filmmakers you know the, of any stripe you know the titane was one of my favorite movies from that year and she is just such a iconoclast like you don't expect her to be the person making the movies she makes but she's pushing a lot of buttons and she's you know transgressing a lot of orthodoxies you know across the whole political compass the whole ideological compass the whole stew of reactionaries is set off by the art of this individual so i get where that she's like you know why she's reacting the way she is because, yeah, what kind of movies can she make if she is literally going to be thinking about, oh, who's going to be coming for my throat today? You know, because it could be anyone. Look at J.K. Rowling, for crying out loud. Like, there was a full court press movement to try and suppress a video game, all because it maybe would give some money to someone who holds an opinion different from a lot of different people. Yeah, and, like, that's another aspect of this. But, like, it, it's sad that we're in this place you know because either we act like it's a bad thing for you know terrorists to stab a bunch of cartoonists to death for drawing the prophet muhammad or we are able to rationalize you know the the, the murder and you know like deplatforming or you know like you know, like whatever bad thing that people are calling for for something as benign as not liking a star wars movie enough or or, or not letting the director we like make the movie we want them to make. You know, like, like the Snyderverse is a problem. You know, like toxic fandom in general is a problem. And it's, you know, unfortunate that like we are at the point now where a lot of these people, artists, and even in particular critics are getting the vibe that I should just get the fuck out of here before, you know, like they really start, you know, like putting people against the wall. Because... I've been listening to A.O. Scott since he was on at the movies back in the day. He was one of the guest hosts and he was always a voice I respected, even though I 
totally found his point of view to be different from mine. But to hear him basically just come out and say that I've, I've had enough. These people are psychos. I, I think that says a lot. Uh, the uh, culture needs to reassess, but we're not going to do that. Like there's an election year looming and we're all about to be deranged completely by every cultural force that we tap into. It's, it's just reality. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, we're, so we're fucked. <laughs> so for, um, just to continue along with the AO Scott thing, AO Scott announced his retirement from, uh, film reviewing this week. And in his sort of exit interview that was published to the New York times website, um, he, answered the question um, about, you know, what he likes and dislikes about movies. And you get the sense that his answer to this question was probably one of the reasons why he decided to get out of Dodge now. And it was essentially about how, you know, he he has pissed off so many like subgroups of fans in, in the last like decade or so, ever since fandom has really gotten out of control. Um, everything everywhere all at once fans top gun maverick fans uh, mcu fans dc universe fans and they all essentially came for his head at one time or another and tried to you know get him fired or threatened his life or you know whatever and yes samuel jackson even partook in the uh, avengers when he did something as like banal as post a sub par avengers one review back in uh, 2012 yeah. or whenever that was and that was not yeah. the movie to to you know go to the mattresses for you know what i mean yeah. like you know, it was the avengers <laughs> that movie was awesome at the time but come on yeah so yeah art in modernity it's it's not it's withering you know it's it's you know we have a deleterious effect on you know art and culture these days everything is you know is getting pushed towards homogeneity in one direction, unfortunately. Or yeah, and yet. yeah, and then the last thing I kind of wanted to say about you know just speaking about these three stories, these three sub stories as a whole is, you know, it's you know next time you think about posting that tweet that is complaining about a director and then tagging that director in that tweet, you know, maybe think twice, people. You know, do you really have to do that because? We, we have to get out of this mindset that it's not enough for us to be confident in our own opinions nowadays, but we must convince everybody else that that opinion is the correct one. And, you know, a lot of people nowadays are, if I agree with somebody on nine out of 10 topics, nine out of 10 subjects, but then that one out of 10 thing that we disagree on, it's that's enough for so many people nowadays to just throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, nope, we disagree on that. Fuck you. I fucking hate you now. I don't like you. You are a bad person. Mm -hmm. But, and we have to let people have differing opinions from us nowadays and come, come to a consensus on those nine out of 10 things that we agreed on in the first place. So it's very magnanimous of you, Matt. And it's very big of you. I don't know why it's so hard. (laughs) <laughs> for this world to just accept something so simple as a concept as tolerance because how else can we live you know and speaking of something that is probably ripe for cancellation it, it is swarm we have this in here again because in our you know final episode of our former iteration i fucked up the audio 
and I left in the trailer audio, so you couldn't hear all the glowing, wonderful things we had to say about this. Did you finish watching it? You know, unfortunately, I did not. Okay. I've only I've only since seen uh, one more episode since last week. So. Well, it gets very, very weird. But I think what I appreciate about this show in its fullness, without spoiling anything, is its willingness to make each episode distinctive, not only in its subject matter, but in like what it's getting out of it. There are some episodes that are like deliberately entirely unlike the other episodes that came before it or you know like that follow it and it serves the whole thing because it makes the whole thing feel very interesting but if i had a, a comment about this other than by you know, reiterate enthusiastically watch this show it is so good um is that by the end it is very clear that they are totally you know, butchering like you know, another form of toxic fan culture here but it's just, you know, people whose whole lives are defined by the parasocial relationship. And nothing indicts a, a you know, the, that whole dynamic more than this, you know, particular series. There's you know, a lot of great actors who show up in this. Like, Poot shows up in a strip club just for one scene. Poot from The Wire. And, but yeah, very memorable. Very distinctive. And I just wonder if it wouldn't maybe have been just as well as a movie. Did it really need to be a like eight hour long series? Like, couldn't this have just been chopped up into its constituent parts? Because this was a better like version of God. What was that? The, the fucking cannibal movie from last year. Um, Bones and all. Bones and all. Like, like this is this is just as good as Bones and all, if not better. And it's exploring something similar, you know, in terms of just the kind of movie that it is. It's a road movie about serial killers. But there's a there's a wholesome heart in it, you know, of the, you, you just see the broken person trying to find love and acceptance. And I just appreciated it a lot. And I'll leave it at that. Yeah, it's um, um, I, I you know, you, you'd asked about the length and whether or not it should have been a movie. I think that the sort of 30 minute episodes are a lot easier to digest. Um, and I feel like if it would have been a movie, it would have felt too like disjointed because you know how you had said basically that every episode is so different That's and it's true. so like wildly crazy. So I, I I think that it's much easier to digest in this format. I I find that I can really only watch one or two episodes That's of this fair. show at a time. Yeah. And so um, but yeah, I, I I'll echo everything you said. I, I think I do think it is a really really good show. It's very unique. I mean, it's so weird. And um, again, I'll say um what I said last week in that I, I don't think it's quite as deep as people want it to be. No, I think it really is just a, like a slasher <clears throat> film. Um, but with maybe a little more frilly edges to it. The one thing that I picked up on in the last couple episodes that I watched between, um, well, two weeks ago and, and this week, um, is sort of what he is saying, what Donald Glover is saying about sort of like the visibility of like black women in modern society as far as she's doing all this heinous shit and everybody's just like either not paying attention to her or uh -huh. like be becoming her best friend, you know? Like you have that guy at the uh, the gym in LA and you know, he just, he doesn't even know her and he, you know, pretends like he knows her. And then he starts calling the receptionist a racist at the yeah. front desk. And then, I mean, the only person in this show, at least what I've seen so far that really seems to pick up on her bullshit is Billie Eilish's character. 
um, and everybody else is just kind of like, yeah, come be my best friend. Like, come to my house. Come on. And so I yeah. think that's pretty funny. No, it, it is. It's very funny. And it, and that underpins her success as a serial killer in the story. And I will say that there is a very fun episode that really sticks out like a sore thumb, but in a good way. And it's where it stops being the show and it turns into a true crime documentary investigating mm. her. So like, look forward to that episode in the future. Okay. HBO also delivered something that I've been meaning to watch for a while. And it's a documentary about the photographer and activist Nan Golden. Uh, directed by Laura Poitras, you know, the, the, the queen of investigative you know, journalism. Here she is just doing a trite, wrote little, you know, biopic documentary. Because, and, and that's the thing, like, they're, they're, there's two halves to this experience. You have the polemic film against the Sackler family and OxyContin. And then you have the documentary exploring the life and career of Nan Golden. And one of them is a hell of a lot more interesting than the other to me. And I would have much rather have gotten the, the, the front loaded archival footage and like all of the showcases of her little art projects, like the slideshows that she would create. But they, because she is such a sainted figure, there isn't a lot of, I don't know if you know a lot about her, but a lot of her work is about focusing in on the, the, the underground deviant communities of New York in like the seventies and the eighties and nineties. So like the gays and the, the druggies and the hookers and everything. And a lot of what she did was revelatory because it exposed, you know, the lives of people who weren't being seen, but it, there's a hint of exploitation to her whole career. And it, once that kind of goes like it's, it's put out there but it's not acknowledged deeply enough or with enough substance, you know, to actually like sting and like put any like, you know, pain, you know, or, or any questioning within herself when she's being spoken to, because in the modern day, all she fucking cares about is taking care of the Sacklers and making sure their name is off of every museum that they've invested money into or donated money to rather, because that, that's the arc of the documentary. It like, they only really become compelling when you realize that, She's just trying to, you know, stave off cancel culture in her own right. You know, kind of like you know, like Lydia Tarr. She is a, a, you know, someone who is pretty, you know, high up within the, the standings of New York art, you know, people. She has a lot of cred, but she, she also knows that you have to make sure that you can't be brought low. And right now she could realistically be brought low if people would apply modern sensibilities to how she built herself into who she is. So it's interesting on that level. But I feel like Poitras has been pulling her punches since she did Citizen Four. She got that Oscar and she started fucking the subject of her last documentary, Risk. Like she's like one of the dudes, not Julian Assange. She was fucking the other guy. <laughs> and then in this, you know, she's focusing on someone she respects deeply and was probably inspired by. And so I feel like she should be hitting harder for, you know, somebody, you know, with the stature that she herself has. But all the same, worth watching if you have HBO and want to have an inside look at some fascinating, you know, people and, uh, you know, there's some in some, you know, recent and, you know, former history. Is this um, 
I just a uh, question about you know as I'm watching the clips here, it, it this strikes me as a documentary that doesn't necessarily have like the most um, visible through line. Like it seems very exactly. um, it's very it seems like very vague. It seems like it doesn't have much narrative to it. Is that correct? Is it just kind of like a bunch a collection of of photos and and uh, video clips and stuff like that? Yeah, and the the narrative thrust is all the activism, all the protesting and whether or not they're succeeding in getting uh, museums and, uh, and, you know, and whatnot to take the Sackler name off of the wing that they paid for. And so, and I, and I believe that is something they succeeded at, even like all the way to the Guggenheim and the Met and all that stuff. So like, that's, that's the thing that they're following. It's like they, 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 the victory comes, you know, eventually, but it's, you know, layered around, her career but it, it doesn't quite get compelling for me to see who she like who she was versus who she is today you know like I, at least like like the, I, what wasn't compelling was the lack of interest in actually taking that through line between everything because either you're treating all the past like fluff or you're trying to use it to inform the present and I'm sorry to invoke Warhammer right now but like you know the two-headed eagle in Warhammer 40k like, like one is looking to the future with its eyes open and one is looking to the past with its eyes closed. It's one of those situations. Okay. So Nan Golding is like the Imperium of Man. <laughs> and this this next thing on the watch list here, I meant to watch it just because it looked interesting. It, it's funny that so much of what we're talking about today is running along this theme of like old school attitudes and modern mores you know, and cancel culture. Cause that's what lucky Hank is about from what I yeah, get. This, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, new AMC show with, uh, Bob Odenkirk. And, um, this is the adaptation of a novel, uh, called the straight man. Um, and Bob Odenkirk plays a chair for an English department at an underfunded college who essentially, has sort of reached his breaking point as far as how mundane his life is, how like he's essentially having a midlife crisis. And um, this this show is weird because I would say this is the closest thing AMC has ever made to a sitcom. Okay. <laughs> um, but it's, it's not really that funny, um, even though it does try to be. Um, and it's it's saying some things that are pretty interesting. You know, it's pretty scathing about like modern um, modern institutions like universities, um, and it, it does have some interesting stuff to say. But it's the whole thing is rather mundane and boring, and it it's it's but it's trying to be. But I don't know. I come from the school of thought that just because you acknowledge that something is mundane doesn't mean that it's good. Like it still is mundane. It still is boring. It still isn't very interesting. And, um, that's kind of my thoughts after the first episode of this show is that, um, it's just kind of, I don't know. It just kind of exists. And that's something that I'm going to say about another thing here in a second, (laughs) but, um, yeah, I don't know. It wasn't a, it definitely wasn't as good as I thought it was going to be. I mean, I was ready for like, you know, the next Bob Odenkirk thing with AMC, you know, I was ready, like, like, yes, let's go after Better Call Saul. And this, I don't know, it just, it didn't do it for me. Well, and I guess that begs the question, like, why? What, what, like, why is there no edge to it? 
why does it like is it if from the sounds of it it like it it's, it's just too cynical without any heart it, like there's just nothing to cheer for nothing to like be anxious about as a viewer it's just a guy running around having mundane interactions with people who are mad at him yeah well it's that and then it's also i mean like i had said before it's it's very sitcommy and it's it's a mix of extremely like pedestrian humor like um you know i guess i would probably compare this to that uh abc show abbott elementary where you know it's set in the same sort of environment and stuff and it's it's a mix of very pedestrian like like big bang theory type humor but it's shot um, like breaking bad and mad men yeah yeah exactly that's exactly. so weird it's, it's very very strange and I don't know, I might give it another chance, you know, just to see kind of what it's all about. Because from what I understand, the book is pretty acclaimed and, um, you know, people make a lot of um, comparisons. The book gets a lot of comparisons to Confederacy of Dunces. And so I'm like, is this really the show that you made out of this? And I guess we'll see. But The Confederacy of Dunces is famously unfilmable. It's one of those mm -hmm. things that, you know, every major like comedian, male celebrity has like had on their wish list to do. And most of them died of speedballs you know, of heroin and cocaine. <laughs> yeah. It's not even a joke. My God. But this, yeah. this, you alluded to it, though. Another thing that exists that's just there yeah. waiting for you to press play. The Boston Strangler. I almost did it. I saw Kira Knightley and I thought, hey, that can't be half bad. Surely. But it's bad, huh? Well, it it's not necessarily bad, but it's just it just kind of is there. And this is um, Zodiac Light, is what I'll call it. Because those um, were the vibes I was getting. That's yeah. what gave me hope. You know, they they tricked me. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. It's just kind of again. This is a this is another movie. This is about the. Um, uh boston strangler case from i believe the early 60s um where a guy killed uh 13 women i believe and the movie itself is about the two women reporters that sort of broke the case um it sort of connected the dots between all these murders and um i don't know this this movie just really plays like a series of events like you know, you there is really no through line. There is really no backstory given to any of the characters. There's no um, there's no real character development done. Keira Knightley's character is just so boring, and um, it just it plays like a series of events. Like we'll show you the first murder, then we'll show you the second murder, then we'll show you the third murder, and you know you see like every single one of these murders. But it's just kind of like a, it's almost like a documentary, but um, but it's not. And um, they're really, really, they do try and inject the drama uh, by fudging with the facts of this case where they make Kira Knightley's uh, relationship with the killer a lot more than it was in real life. Like in real life, you know, she, I don't think she even ever met the, the killer and he never was hunting her. But in the movie, they make it seem like the killer's like hunting her and like, like you know coming after her and it's none of that happened and so it, it's a little it's patently ridiculous and um yeah it wasn't very good that's too bad because the, yeah. that is what made you know like zodiac so good was how like you know because james vanderbilt's script 
hewed very closely with the truth. Mm-hmm. And I guess it just had a subject that catered to that because since as an unsolved case, the Zodiac is a lot more alluring because we, it's a, still a mystery. So like the, yeah. the, the more facts you get in there, the more horrifying and despair, you know, inducing it is the fact that that person didn't get caught. But in this, yeah, like why make it more spicy? Is it just because Dahmer had that, that, that person who literally knew what was going on and wasn't being heard and they're, they were just trying to emulate that angle, but they couldn't really pull it off because they had to fudge it so much. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading into it yeah. too much. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, they they really, really, I mean, they really focus on Kira Knightley's character and we just don't know anything about her. I mean, it's, she's... That's what I mean. Yeah, like, like she's, very, she's very, very one note in this movie. Her, her big sort of um, character trait is that her husband is mad with how much time she spends at work. And like, that's, that's her big character trait. And it's very one note, you know, cause at least in like Zodiac, you have uh, Chloe Savitny's character, like, like actually like acting like a human being while her husband is in the middle of mania, you know, over, you know, the mystery and like the, the whole, like beyond just, she's not just there to Hector. She's there to be like, yo, motherfucker. Like, we're not okay. Like, I'm not okay right now. This is not normal. You're like, like, at least there was something there for her to do. Even like, like, look at, did you ever see, um, uh, God, what is it even called? It's the, the, the channel beat the BBC channel Four series about the, the husband wife murders from the UK that, that McNulty is in. Oh yeah. Uh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. I, I, it has a uh, David, uh, uh, Thewis in it, the yes. guy from uh, Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, like really, really good. But it, it, at least in that one, like the drama at home is, oh, my husband's schizophrenic and spent all of our money on a car, and now I have to like you know, deal with some like real shit, and and it all kind of you know, gets driven home how crazy it is that she's had to sit there and get to know a monster like. Uh, I can't even remember their names. They're so fucking, they're fucked up. But see, that's more interesting to talk about than the Boston Strangler, which is the the movie that, you know, we're kind of panning right now, but I did the unthinkable, the, the, like, like, what is the phrase from John wick? The series itself. It's like, I was given the impossible task and I watched (laughs) all three of these movies in like 48 hours. Now it's four of these movies in like 48 hours. And I will you know, simply say that back in the quaint year of 2016, when John Wick 1 came out, it just had this appeal because it was so absurd. The, the, the elevator pitches, oh yeah, uh, Keanu Reeves you know, gets his house broken into. These guys, these Russian gangsters kill his dog. And then here it turns out he's like the greatest assassin of all time. And he goes on a glorious rampage of revenge. And that's the whole movie. Who's it directed by? Oh, just some stunt actor or coordinator that he's never made a movie before in his life. And I remember the reaction to John Wick being a lot of like, what the fuck? Like why at the time? But then once the movie came out and we got it, people were like, okay, no, this rules. And because like it was coming off the heels of, you know, obviously things like the, the raid and the raid to Burundal, like, which really 
I think, kicked off the this kind of movie in the, the 2010s. You got to give Gareth Evans credit. I think I got his name right. Isn't that his name or is it Gareth Edwards? Um, the guy who did the raid movies is Evans. Evans. He also did uh, The Apostle on Netflix or just Apostle. But those two movies in specific just like were maximalist action movies that just, you know, had competent genre, you know, you know, cop gangster movie shenanigans slapped on top of it. You know, the Raid 2 is basically just the departed with you know, punching and kicking in it. But it also had crazy action sequences and whatnot that pushed the limits of what you thought were possible in camera. And if there's anything that the John Wick trilogy, as I understood it, represented, it was that. It was that, like, even though it was all nonsense, like, I never really could tell you exactly who was what and what was who or why anything that was happening mattered. It all just looked good enough and it was under, you know, it was, I could understand it enough, even if the words didn't make any sense, you know, half the time, you know, because it's all just, I don't know, like, maybe I'm underselling it, the mythology of this, because it is cool. It's, this is basically 100 bullets for the common man for the for the 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 bud light crowd this is you know like like it's 100 bullets like it's the the movies for 100 bullets that we never got you know it's it's the craziness of smoke and aces with like like if if wanted had had like its own assassin continuity still like if it was its own franchise but that's the beauty of john wick it was just some dumb name and it was just keanu reeves and with those foundational aspects they have built what is probably the best action franchise of the new millennium. I guess I'll just put, I'll put my flag on that. There there's nothing from superheroes, star Wars, like anything that's like a, a crazy roller coaster ride experience, a blockbuster experience. I think the John wick movies, like the, this, this initial trilogy represented something significant and was worthy of the conversation. I'll let you do the intro to John Wick 4 because I kind of have basically done that myself here but it kind of makes the case that my argument that it is the the cream of the crop yeah. as it were that argument is 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 the right one cuz this movie is something else take it away <laughs> yeah i'm glad you touched on all that because i'm going to i'm going to kind of continue to touch on some of those themes um yeah John Wick series probably one of the more surprising action series to actually take off because I still remember seeing the first trailer before 2013's Evil Dead film. And when the title came up on screen, people in the theater started laughing and snorting <laughs> because it's just, it's ridiculous. And um, now that we're, we're a decade removed, hundreds of millions of dollars later, uh, the series is critically acclaimed, it is audience acclaimed, and it has reached its fourth and final question mark film. Um, we're a long way from people laughing at the movie's name. And I think that's probably the best place to start with John Wick Chapter 4. It is a complete commitment to the bit. It is a complete commitment to what it's selling. It doesn't matter how excessive it may seem. It doesn't matter how stupid its lore and setting sometimes seems. It doesn't matter how ridiculously survivable its protagonist is. Modern action films often feel embarrassed by their war, their world and their lore, feeling the need to cram in as much comedy as possible and constantly winking at the audience. Um, look at the MCU. Look at the lead writer 
for Netflix's Witcher series coming out against the books that she's fucking adapting. Look at this new Dungeons and Dragons movie where they hired the directors of the comedy film Game Night to laugh and snicker their way all the way to the silver screen. None of it is taken seriously. And that is why John Wick succeeds. It is complete commitment, it is excessive, it is ridiculous, and you take it all incredibly seriously because the movie takes it seriously. And I loved this movie. I think it is the best one out of any of these. I think it is the most cinematic version of these movies. I think it has the best through line, the most satisfying ending, and I, I'm pretty much completely on board with everything it was doing. A um, couple nitpicks, I guess, we'll get to those, but yes, amazing. I am so fucking inspired right now. Like, <laughs> I think you, you just, you said a lot that really needs to be said, because why this movie succeeds is because it doesn't think that it's there to do anything else but to entertain you. Here is not a movie that is, you know, taking your time. It's not robbing you of your life and your dollars so that it can hector you and lecture you about something. It's just here to show you some cool shit and have some awesome actors say some really silly lines in the coolest way possible and to do things that you just shouldn't be able to fucking do. Like we'll get into the nitty gritty about all the different action sequences, but they do inspiring things like this movie. Like you say, it's cinematic in that it reminds you of like what can be achieved. What can be possible if you opened your third eye wide enough and then somehow find a way to replicate it on the silver screen for other people. Like how do you become a wizard enough at punching somebody that you can make a movie like this? Like as far as a director goes, is Chad Seleski, so how, how, I think I said his name right. How do you become this guy? Like, what do we know about him? Because th that's what makes no sense to me. It's like the lore, all of that, like, is whatever. But then you take a dude who can actually make a product that is digestible. Like, how is that possible? Because we know how, like, Mark Millar is hard to swallow. There's a reason why we didn't get Wanted 2. Or, or even yeah. a version of Wanted that hewed to his comics. But it's like, yeah. Yeah, Chad, Chad Stahelski is interesting because, you know, he started nearly like 30 years ago working in Hollywood as a stuntman. And he's part of this sort of new school of stuntmen who have become directors. Um, very, very similar career tra trajectory to David Leach, the guy who did the Deadpool movies and Bullet Train. But I think this he's much more successful because the thing about Chad Stahelski is he sort of... There was a gradual uh, uh, incline for him where he went from stuntman to stunt coordinator to assistant director. Um, he, he is the assistant director on many, many action films before he even touched John Wick. And then he got his break with John Wick 1. And he's done all four of these movies. And um, he just has, he has the eye for what makes a good action scene. Um, he knows when to mix practical and CG in a good way. And then he he brings all of his friends to the movie. He says, you know, all my stuntman friends, come do this movie. We're gonna sell the hell out of this thing. And that's that's what he does. God damn. Because yeah, because that's the thing. It's half the fun 
or half the reason to join his movies is the fun. Because mm-hmm. you know it's going to be done safely, but you know it's going to be, hey, we know all the tricks and we know the realities a lot better than these silly, artsy-fartsy directors who go to their film schools. We went to the school of hard knocks, Mr. Stuntman. So yeah, like it's it's a neat little vibe, a little bit of a wave going on. The 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 the, the, the new stunt wave or something like that. I don't know. It's stupid. But as far as this yeah, movie was... goes, it's yeah, indicative of like this is like their crowning achievement, the apotheosis of everything that has been coalescing over the last ten years or so. Yeah, I was um you know, when this movie starts, I I kind of folded my arms and was you know saying like okay movie impressed me because this movie literally starts with a two lawrence of arabia references you know you have the the desert scene on the horseback and then you have the uh the scene of uh lawrence fishburne blowing out the match that transitions into the the setting or the rising sun and so i was like okay are we really doing this are really we really doing lawrence of arabia and then the, the, I mean, the entire movie itself, I mean, I guess I'm kind of a mark for this stuff because a lot of this movie is just the good, the bad, and the ugly, where you have, you have like, uh, gunfights and like standoffs and the musical cues. There's, there's a musical cue in this movie towards the end that is literally like the opening notes of the last duel scene from, for a few dollars more. And then the three main characters are all like direct analogs to the three main characters from the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's. I'm, I guess I'm just kind of a mark for it because I think it it adapted those things very well, and I think it it pays homage to them very well. And so by the end of the movie, I you know of course I was fully on board, but but yeah, it was it was an interesting way to start it off. Because then it goes deeper than that. Because the <clears throat> the central three uh, fighters of our story, the the dudes dancing around each other for most of the movie, mirror the three main characters from the good, the bad, and the ugly directly too, as you've pointed out. And but I guess what I didn't quite pick up on is like like what what do you mean by the beginning desert sequences being a fuck you to the the end of the third? Yeah, that um, so. I can't help but notice that the writer for the first three John Wick films is not on board for this fourth one. It is a um, the main writer, anyways, uh, Derek Colstead, I believe was his name. He um, I don't know what happened, but he's not on this fourth movie. And um, I I almost feel like because the whole thing about the third movie is you know. John Wick has to please the elder, who is basically the head of the high table. And in the opening, like, five minutes of this movie, he just blows his head off. He blows that guy's head off. And so, yeah, it almost felt like a, like a fuck you to the third movie. Like, we're not going to do this anymore. <laughs> we're doing, we're going to take it in a completely different direction. And um, I don't know if that had to do with the absence of, of Kolstad or, or what, but I, that's what I felt. That's the feeling I got. Because that is the thing. If you go on Google and you type in John Wick, there's a lot of images that say John Wick trilogy. Did they really think that they were going to make a fourth one when they ended that third one? Or was it just always in their back pocket? Maybe. I I think so. I think they were going to um, always probably do a fourth. Um, 
because around the time that John Wick 3 came out was also the time that, you know, all this talk of the spin-offs, you know, was kind of coming about. And so, um, and then, I mean, of course, if you want to be real cynical about it, there's the whole money thing because the these movies have done nothing but ascend as far as the box office goes, and they're going to continue to to do so with this fourth one. Um, you know, it's on track to do about 70 million this weekend, which is a franchise best. So, um, of course, they're going to make a fourth. You know, is, does this mean that we're going to be? Maybe this is a question better served for the end. But if this is successful, are we going to see less superhero movies going forward and more quote unquote original attempts at? franchise building god I, you know i hope so i think I, I hope that would be sort of the the lesson they would take away but um you know as successful as these movies are they're still not as successful as superhero movies like that's the thing that's is true. you know this is on they track don't cost to do... nearly as much that is true that's the, that is the, very that's true. The, the key difference i think yeah that that is very true because like but i mean when you look at the the box office as being a success for this film means 70 million uh in a weekend that would be considered a failure for a superhero movie because a success for a superhero movie is like 150 million first weekend so i unfortunately i don't think that's what that means but i mean we'll see we'll see well what else i guess i guess we might as well get it out of the way did they really like have to kill Lance Reddick's character so quickly in the <laughs> the movie that came out right after he died. Why did they do that? Yeah, that was oh man, that was rough. That was I mean, you you really can't when you're watching those scenes, you can't help but like think of, you know, real life and yeah, it was I mean, it, it, it this movie is a week removed from his death, so you obviously can't fault them for it, but it's like yeah, it's pretty rough that his character just gets unexpectedly shot in this movie and then dies on the floor of some yeah. like uh, palatial, uh, you know, uh, high rise building. And and then, yeah, and then they, they, they show his grave later and it's like, oh, fuck, this is so rough. Well, you know? it, it puts that thing that we mentioned, like when, you know, in our little memoriam segment for him in context, because like on Lance, on Keanu's birthday, his your wife or fiance was like, where do you want to go? And he was like, I want to go see Lance. So that means when he went to the go to the set to go on a, his day off to go see Lance Reddick, it was when they were shooting him getting killed. Yeah. Yeah. More than likely. More than that, likely. That's, yeah. Fuck. That is definitely probably the case. But yeah, I mean, again, you know, rest in peace because he, um, you know, even in his I don't know, five minutes of screen time. He's great. That that whole scene is very, very tense and it was very well done with the the sand and the hourglass and him sort of speaking up against um, the marquee, you know, sort of, um, and then paying for it. That was very well done. Yeah, and that just kind of you know, points to the something, I guess, a larger praise that we got to give the whole thing that you, you've, you, sh- you highlighted in the document, the set design, the art direction. Anytime that they had to be in a space, it looked amazing. I can only imagine how complicated it was to build out that abandoned apartment during that shootout sequence at the end that they were, you know, hovering the camera over and flying around. Like, they did impossible tasks, but they made it all look so real, even when they blended in shit that was obviously fake. Like, that, 
like like and that's the how do you make that 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 wrong way around the roundabout chase gunfight sequence work in a, in a real world in a real paris because like they made it look so real it did not look fake to me it was like they were just shooting this thing french connection style on the streets of paris without a permit and we're just waiting to get arrested but the cops never showed up <laughs> yeah no it's it, that that is probably the, the highlight action scene of the film is that one and uh, they haven't come out yet. I'm sure we'll eventually get some sort of behind the scenes of, you know, how that scene was filmed, but they haven't come out yet and said, but my only guess is that they they shot some of it on location and then for some of it, they built like a, a recreation of that street. I mean, obviously they didn't build a whole Arc de Triumph, but um, it's, you. there are parts in that, um, scene where you can sort of tell it, it never got to the point where it bothered me but you can tell that somebody clearly didn't actually get hit by a car like it was CG you know like the body that was flying in the air was obviously yeah. CG and so I'm guessing it was a combination of on location shooting and then they probably and then they built a, a recreation they built a set version of of that street of that roundabout and and then did did some green screening and um, and then kind of called it a day, but yeah, that's, if, if you wanted to, you know, get into the action scenes, you know, yeah. and start with that one. I mean, that's the one to start with because, you know, a good action film is only as good as its set pieces. It's only as good as its, its action scenes. And yeah, that, that was great. I mean, just all the people getting hit by the cars and, and sort of dodging and weaving through traffic and just kind of sidestepping to not get hit by a car and have, you know, the guy he's fighting against get hit and just incredible. The the one sequence that I just, like, I lost my, my fucking head was when like there's, like, three cars that are all stopped, like, they're clustered together, and all those guys are out and they have their guns raised, and then John Wick just starts ghost riding the whip around them you know whipping a yeah. cookie and shooting them dead like dead eye shooting them like with his with his unsupported hand from his car like they should be like covering him with bullets and just like destroying him <laughs> but he is like able to just like shoot non-stop without reloading for way more than 21 shots but I, I just I just turned my brain off and I was like, this is just awesome, man. Just like enjoy it, just let it happen. Even if like, cause yeah, it begs beggars belief half the time. But at the same time, there is a gr lot of grounded realism in the combat when they want it to be. And yeah, yeah, the God, the, the I really liked the 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 fight up the stairs. That whole final act is so killer. That where they mm -hmm. set that all up to you know, okay, yeah, we're gonna have a duel. We're gonna you know. You know, pistols at dawn that's cool but you gotta actually make it here and like once i realized what was happening i was like oh thank god you know because i was it wasn't a slog because you know like from action set piece to the next it didn't start feeling final boss video gamey until that moment but at that moment i was just utterly into it and it was just enjoying the absurdity of like the fact that Keanu Reeves wasn't a pile of broken bones yet, and he was still out there <laughs> pummeling motherfuckers. I mean, it's it, it, we're we're not going to see movies like this anymore. Like Liam Neeson used to make these movies too, not quite to this extreme. He made them 
like the CBS version of whatever the John Wick movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, those, I mean, that fight up the stairs, incredible. I really liked how they intercut that, um, that radio DJ where she would kind of follow them from location to location. And she was sort of the, um, the decider of the soundtrack while those fight scenes were yeah. going on. The, and because like, the car radios, like those, like the, that music would get diegetic within the scenes because the assassins are listening to it. And then he has hijacked that vehicle or crashed it or something. And the music will fade in and out and distort. Yeah. the and it, it gave the whole, it was like a, it was basically like you had a full John Wick movie. And then for the final act, they were like, oh yeah, here's our version of the Warriors. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was incredible. And my personal favorite action scene of the movie was that Berlin nightclub because it was it was just it was so well done. I really enjoyed that um side villain that they brought in Killa, the big fat guy. That was uh awesome and how he still he just pummeled John Wick and like threw him off the ledge of that that nightclub and the waterfalls and just all of the people dancing. And I thought that, you know, it reminds me of like um, the matrix uh, action scenes, the matrix reloaded when they, they go into the club. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I just, I, I killa. I mean, that, that guy is amazing. That's such a good idea for a character this far into this film series where we've seen kind of almost every iteration of bad guys possible. And then you introduce this big, like, that German that's played by, um, do you know who Scott Adkins is? Yeah, he's a he's a yeah. big, thick muscle daddy as as far yeah. as I can remember. So they they you know they fatten him up a bunch and he, uh, another one of um, Stahelski's stuntman friends and yeah that 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 action scene that whole thing was awesome and just how he he you know at the end of it he falls off or he he launches him over the ledge and just breaks his neck on that staircase and, oh, so good um yeah very very good and and um what did you think of i i think probably the weakest um set piece of the film is probably i mean it's still good um but the osaka continental fight yeah. because i felt I felt like it got it went on for a long time and it was probably the least interesting of all of the there were parts of it that were cool like Donnie Yen's um uh, motion activated doorbells and that was that was pretty interesting but on a whole that was probably the least interesting it basically is there for a purpose made evident by the the after credit sequence I believe cuz the, they they just needed something to set something up within the movie, but also do some very effective franchise building at the same time. And I think that that's why we can, you'll blame it for being a little uninspired compared to the mm -hmm. other ones, because they, they kind of just needed to be basic about it because they needed to make sure that one character made it out alive. Uh, I won't say which one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, a lot of thing, a lot of times with these films, you don't see the like the seams in the fight scenes uh, very much, and that was one of the scenes where I felt like I saw the seams where yeah. you, you could kind of tell that um, he that Keanu Reeves was either very old, which he is, he's an old guy now, or he was very tired when he was doing all that nunchuck stuff. Oh God, it, yeah, it, that was kind of corny. Yeah, yeah, that was that was a little corny, and it, it, a lot of it looked a little. 
a little uh, iffy and like he wasn't connecting with the guys he was fighting. And and also the one of the things that you sort of notice with these martial arts heavy movies is um, the background stuntmen doing what I would like to call the stuntman shuffle, where <laughs> they're, they're waiting for their moment to get hit. They're waiting for their moment to get punched by Keanu Reeves. And they're just kind of standing in the background going like this. You know, and they're they're just kind of they're just kind of they're waiting for their moment, and um, you, you notice it a lot in that scene where it's like, okay, that guy that guy clearly could have punched Keanu Reeves in the back of the head at that moment, but he was waiting for him to turn around and and punch him, and so um, you don't you don't see that with these this series very often, but I, I felt like I saw it a lot there. Yeah, some of those action sequences that you know are a little bit more prolonged as those takes get longer you do see like Keanu has a bit of a hitch in his step the nunchucks yeah. for some reason just get like nonchalantly laid across his his neck over his shoulders so that he can crack the neck of the guy he's stolen the gun from like the it just things just take a little too long but they don't want to ramp it up and make it look you know uncanny because then the people will know that it's fake you know, you know what I mean? a little more little, yeah. you got to keep the pretense up but they, they didn't yeah they, they got to be able to cover the seams up a little bit better sometimes but yeah like that shot of those bodies flying in the air i want to shout out that dog that dog yeah. is the most chad fucking dog in a <laughs> in a movie ever the fact that they they trained it to piss on command you know to make <laughs> this movie is like the, like i just appreciated everything that dog had to do but the, I, I also want to bring up of the character called Klaus. Because, yeah. like, he, this, this person is introduced basically. It's like, okay, you, you've come to us, John Wick. We tell you to fuck off, John Wick. We, the Roma, we don't like you. Now we're just going to hand you over to the bad guy. Okay? Klaus, go take him. So this guy shows up and he's covered with tattoos. I wish I, I couldn't find a picture of him for some reason. Yeah. He looks like. Um... Oh God! What is that, guys? The the old guy from um, uh, Billy Connolly, the old guy yeah. from Boondock Saints. Yeah, yeah, that's what he looks like. But now, basically, my thought on that character, though, because it's there's just a lot of characters like that that just like worm into your head, like the Gimp in Pulp Fiction, where you're, you're given nothing but your brain just has to fill in the gap somehow, and there's this deep backstory that must exist, like it's kind of like an iceberg, I guess is what the, the modern internet would call it. And Klaus is an iceberg character because he's inexplicable. He's absurd. And you're just like, what the fuck? Like, well, why is this person here? He's just like, I am Klaus and now I leave. And then he just, <laughs> yeah. he's there and he's gone. He never comes up again. He doesn't show up at the end to save John Wick's life or some shit like that. He is just there. And for some reason he's given a name and uh, you know, like that's just the, the way it goes. And we just have to live with it. You, you will we'll never stop thinking about you, Klaus. <laughs> well, the, um, you know, speaking of the characters that are introduced in, in this film in particular, um, another thing it's so good at doing is, you know, this is uh, ostensibly the final three hours of this quadrilogy. And they introduce so many new characters in sort of the 11th hour. And, Usually when film series do that, it's so badly There's done. There he is. <laughs> and um, 
I just want to commend them for, you know, the, the three, you know, main characters that are introduced in this movie, and they're in this movie alone, are Bill Sarsgaard, um, Shamir Anderson's tracker character, and then um, Donnie Yen's uh, Kane. And they, they, in, they sort of introduce and um, make these characters a part of this film in, in such a meaningful way. It's so well done, I thought. Everyone's motivations made sense. And mm-hmm. yeah, it, it didn't matter that like we didn't have any prior context with them. Within the context of the John Wick universe, you, just by looking at them, you knew exactly, you know, like basically who they were. You know, like I don't. There's a kind of like a, a silent film quality to like the storytelling in the in these movies that is just kind of like primal to cinema in a way. That the I guess that's the strongest suit behind all of this is that they don't need to p- people to talk to like to convey exactly what's going on before they start punching, and it's not, not too often you see that because like you like Mark Millar would just like fill it with nothing but dialogue, you know, mm-hmm. like he was Quentin Tarantino. Like compare this to something like Kick Ass or God, like because that's another movie. You know, like it's it's in the lineage. Like you wanted. You know, you know, kick acid, like all, like it did lay the foundation for what John Wick would do. I'm just a lot more satisfied with what these people are able to achieve, I guess. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, same. It's and grown into something beautiful. Yes, definitely. Yeah, and um, I wanted to touch on the lore of John Wick because now that we have these four movies and these announced spinoffs for this this world. What do you think about the lore? I mean, as far as like this mix, this just strange mix of like uh, Latin and French and like Russian Orthodox like imagery, and then you have all these weird like disparate elements, like you know, like these these women that are like 1950s telephone operators and um, these hotels for hitmen that are all over the world and it's just it's all very strange and at this point what do you think of it all do you think it's is it too dumb to work or is it just dumb enough that it does work (laughs) i think that's exactly it because yeah it's esoteric but like in the middle of the john wick 2 i was like god this is stupid i don't care about this i was I, i i i always have the roger ebert quote of as far as i could understand i couldn't i did not care but then John Wick three came along, and for some reason, it, like it started clicking for me what I was seeing, as I've alluded to. It's like like this is just one hundred bullets, like you know, this is just like look at it from that perspective because it's yeah it's it's the elites, it's the killers who are forced into bondage to them, and it's the war to decide, you know, like who gets to exist, who gets to have the power, in the you know, behind like of for the people who are the power behind the power, and. Mm-hmm. And so, and once I like processed it that way, I was totally fine with it. I stopped like overthinking it because I, I don't know, but that's just my personal way of processing this. I could like see like other people having their eyes just glaze over and not care, but I care. I it, it works for me now, and I would not mind seeing more. I'm not, I'm not sad that John Wick is dead. They better not raise that corpse from the dead anytime soon. 
but at the same time, I would be down to see other characters. I would love to see the world maybe continue if they have cool ideas for it. Because they're not doing anything ponderous. They don't need to pull off the, we need to have a Thanos-level event every four movies type of bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> like, they just need to make a good one. You know, there's got to make another good one, I guess. But that's what's on the horizon. They're going to be doing some spinoffs. Yeah, there's, uh, as of right now, I believe, um, three announced spinoffs. Um, the Ballerina series um, from, uh, that's going to start Anna de Armas, which, I mean, there's already a poster out for it. So, I mean, it's a thing. It's, yeah. it's coming. And, um, uh, you know, the one thing I will say is, um, I believe it is a prequel. I mean, it has to be a prequel because it has been announced that Keanu Reeves is going to be in it. Oh. Um, at, at least he'll, he'll probably make a cameo. It, that's honestly probably all it will be. But um, and then of course we have the Continental, which um, is going to be a TV series about the hotel. And then also, I would assume. I guess I shouldn't have said that these were all announced because you would assume that they're going to do something with that end credit scene yes. uh, of this film because. Um, what happens basically is the uh, Hiroyuki Sonata's daughter from the um, the Japanese continental is about to get revenge on Donnie Yen's character, Donnie Yen's Kane, and then it sort of cuts out. And so, um, yeah, they, they must be doing something with that, I would assume. Yeah. That was my thought. That's what I was alluding to because it, because mm -hmm. it, uh, it, you don't go out of your way to have an after credit sequence unless you're setting something up. You know, like, there are not too many movies that have done that. I, I forget who... Yeah, because, like, even, like, the pioneer of the after credit sequence, as far as I know, was Pirates of the Caribbean. And that was because they mm. thought they were going to maybe do other ones. Yeah. Yeah, that... Um, I think they were definitely among one of the first, you know, major blockbusters to do it, and... And yeah, so it, it'll be interesting to see kind of how this this sort of pans out. Um, I mean, like I said said earlier, this this movie's going to do gangbusters, and Chance Tuchelski is about to become one of the most sought after directors in Hollywood. He already is. If you go to his IMDb page, he has fourteen in development projects right now, and including a uh, adaptation of the Sony PlayStation game Ghost of Tsushima and uh, Rainbow Six movie. See, I am fucking excited for that, dude, because if it's yeah. anything like the book, like it's probably gonna, I don't know, it might be more closely associated with the games. Because in the book, the bad guys are um, eco-terrorists that are, mm -hmm. are trying to spread Ebola at the Sydney Olympics so that all of humanity will die except for their little pocket utopia in the Amazon. And the, the end of that story is John Clark showing up with Rainbow Six and taking all the bad guys out of the jungle, making them strip naked and then like walk into it so that they could like get killed by the elements. I don't think they're going to make that, but yeah. that book is awesome. There's like a, I mean, have you ever read it? No, I, I've heard, I've heard it's awesome. I have played some of the games. I played the uh, I, pl I put so many hours into Rainbow Six Vegas, the uh, mm -hmm. the Xbox 360 game, but um, yeah, that 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 could be cool because yeah, I've heard that the the books hew closer to you know political thrillers as as many Tom Clancy adaptations do. That said, 
like the the actual like operator sequences that you know that are in there one of them takes place at like disneyland europe you know it involves carlos the jackal like terrorists trying to get him free if you yeah god i I can't bring yeah because if you haven't read the books jason Bourne, it makes no sense because he's not in the movies but uh there's there's a whole bunch of really good ones like Hmm. and then but the the highlight is that one at the disney world though because the, okay. the, the, there's a there's a sniper that that does something really badass in it. God, but what I yeah. was gonna bring up though, I guess, does this movie make the case for? Oh yes, you you have it in there too. I guess, and he is directly lobbying it. I didn't see that you actually had notes in there. Yep, <laughs> my mind was going in the same direction. <laughs> does this man deserve the inaugural best like stunts Oscar award or like does, does this movie? Are they going to create it just for this movie, or is this is this movie going to be the reason why they create the category? Yeah, you know, I I hate to say it, but I don't think there's going to be much movement on that front. I I don't think you know within a year, within five years, I I don't think it's actually going to happen. But I mean, if people don't know, in the sort of press tour for this film, Stahelski has been devoting a lot of time to lobbying for a best stunts uh, academy award category and um i don't know i just don't th- i think they're too stuffy to acknowledge something like that um uh, you know as cool as it could be because what do you think if that you know hypothetically if that were to be a thing what do you think would go into looking at something like that like yeah. what would go into searching for the best stunts and at what point would the like layman academy voter be involved in the decision in the in the vote? Because this seems like the kind of thing that you would want the the insiders within that discipline to have the mm-hmm. most voice in, because they're the only ones who really understand what a good stunt is. Because you could see some things, like someone would probably say that oh, Avatar had the best stunts when ninety nine percent of that movie would be completely painted with pixels. Like, like yeah. what is actual, st- and they probably did have some, like, they had to do some, like, in-camera stunt work to be sure, but what is, what is more worth, you know, while of achieving the work, what's more deserving? And honestly, I would think it would be the thing that was done in-camera with the least amount of, like, after-effects processing, or had enough, like, in-camera work that, you know, it's indisputable that, like, someone actually did a thing. I know wire foo is a part of it. So like having elegance to that and being able to hide it while, you know, using it effectively is important. So yeah, there's a lot of different things that could go into it, but yeah, I, I would assume that mostly it would go to, you know, things that, you know, you know, took real human bodies to achieve more than sitting in front of a computer. Yeah. Same. I mean, it would, I think what, what would go into it is searching for, you know, the movies that, um, have the most unique um, stunt uh, set pieces while, while making it look real but without actually like hurting people you know or like like making making something look realistic without actually like killing or hurting people yeah like, I assume what would kind of go into the if someone dies in your production you, you're disqualified yeah exactly and so but you know the thing the thing with the academy awards is if that were to ever be invented if they ever were to include that category unfortunately i think that it would most they would mostly stick to like major 
action blockbusters um, as the Academy kind of does. You know, that, that's the thing about the Academy is they, you know, they hew very closely to the same movies where they're like, these are the same 20 movies that are going to get nominated for every category this year. And we're not going to look anywhere beyond that. And if if you were to introduce a best stunts category, I think that for the most part, most years it would probably go to some Thai movie that nobody's ever heard of or some Chinese movie that, you know, nobody or, or um, some Taiwanese movie that nobody's ever heard of. But the Academy voters aren't branching out into those areas. So they're just going to nominate some, you know, action blockbuster that, you know, would that they thought was cool looking or something like that. Yeah, unless you're a movie like RRR that for some reason had a lot of, you know, like international appeal. You, yeah. you wouldn't get notice more than likely because that, that movie probably deserved some kind of stunt you know, oh, yeah. nomination if it existed even though yeah. they had probably had a lot of you know you, you need a lot of help in post-production too all the same mm -hmm. but yeah that, all the, that dude is going to be making a lot of money i just hope that he doesn't you know fuck around too much and find out someday do something stupid and then have his whole career taken away from him God, like there's a lot of news items we just did not have room for this week. A lot of people have been losing their jobs or yeah. maybe shouldn't have lost their jobs to begin with. There's a lot of those conversations going on. But yeah. John Wick for chapter four, a a conclusion and the best kind of movie, the one that I can enjoy completely, even though I did not want it, did not care for it, did not ask for it. It's kind of like when I went to see Mad Max Fury Road for the first time and I was mm, like, why am yeah. I going to this? And then I walked out of the theater and said, this is the best movie I'll see all year long. You know, and I was right about that, you know, but just gobsmacked. I'm gobsmacked by this movie. I'm pleased that it, you know, it kept on giving you something more as it escalated to its final moments. And it was completely satisfying. Like, this is like, like, what if you know, Hideo Kojima actually got to make the the, re, the the final Metal Gear Solid game he always wanted to make? There, there was no one in the way of this thing, and and I'm very grateful yeah. for that. Yeah, same. But that kind of you know does it for the main review. Now we're gonna head on over to the mentionables. How long did you have to wait in in <laughs> queue to get into the the hottest beta? in town the diablo 4 beta yeah so uh this i played this last weekend and the initial queue time that i had was 100 minutes just to get into the game and so i just kind of let my computer idle and and went and did something else but then i came back and i played the diablo 4 beta and let me tell you this is a pretty good game so far um it's very polished for a beta um, and it seems like the creators are actually listening to the fan uh, wants and concerns where they have made this more darker. You know, it hues closer to uh, Diablo 2 rather than Diablo 3 where there's a direness to the world again. Um, everything is very grim dark and very, um, you know, lots of grays instead of and Diablo three was too colorful. And there was like two, the, the art style was way off and they went completely off base. And this is back to sort of that grim, dark art style of Diablo two. And it's very fun. 
Um, really, really like the gameplay so far. It's very addicting. Um, the one thing I will say, um, you know, buyer beware as far as when the actual game comes out in June, they have not yet introduced any of the pay elements which and we don't know what those are going to be to their full extent so far so they could introduce a really really shitty like cash store where you're paying you know microtransaction laden store we don't know that yet so you know beware of that don't go out and pre-order now you know wait till we know these things and um uh the beta is a, uh, the public beta is this weekend it's going on right now so you can actually go um on battle.net right now and download um the diablo 4 beta and play it I, I believe it goes till monday morning so um highly recommend doing that you know i may have to do that <laughs> if i can find the time here because i have been pretty consumed in my own way by a recent you know purchase i made that i've you know hinted at and told the world about but yeah it's, it's a steam deck and i could probably play this on this um this these little devices are the future i guess like that's my mentionable for the week because yeah i anything that i could you know take anywhere with me and play cyberpunk 2077 or the Binding of Isaac or Diablo 4, Hades, Pagel. I can fucking boot up Space Cadet Pinball. Like it's like Windows 3.1 <laughs> yes. on this thing. You know, like it, it's, a, it's a crazy device. And I feel like once people actually understand what they are, they're going to become a little bit more ubiquitous, this kind of device. Um, when Valve announced these things, talking, you know, speaking about like being cautious as an early adopter, I was really cautious about this thing because I almost spent like six hundred and fifty dollars to like reserve one of these things, like when there was a waiting list for them, and I almost bought one last fall, but I hesitated because I just wasn't sure, like you know, if it you know, was actually going to live up to the promise. And I wanted to let the market test it a bit before they got one in my hands. And it was good that I did that because there's things like certain manufacturing issues with the fan that they use for cooling. Um, like, so, cause certain, the early generations of the steam deck had, you know, like they've now changed the, the part that they use for that reason. Cause it could cause catastrophic failure or it was just too dang noisy. It's just as an example, but the best reason to not be an early adopter on hardware like this is to let the software catch up because yeah. if you have been you know, paying attention to the mentionables we often mention free game giveaways because if you have an epic games account you probably have access to a free game or two every week to just bloat your library and there is a seamless and easy way to get all of those games and games on um, you know, good old games on GOG you can easily just get those onto your Steam Deck without any headache. But you can also do all the really nitty-gritty shit, like getting Xbox Game Pass on there. You can even like plug in an external floppy drive and install a game from like you know 1992 on there if you like are really are a masochist. Because but the appeal is that out of the box, without even knowing an ounce of Linux, you can do so much with this thing 
and it's for a price that you can't even get a decent office laptop forget a gaming laptop with gaming you know your hardware as expensive as it is these days forget ever being able to afford to build your own gaming computer again just get one of these fucking things you can upgrade the memory you know you like whether it's the solid state drive on the inside with like by taking it to a shop or cracking it open yourself if you're insane i'm not that insane <laughs> but from what i understand valve is pretty easy to work with if you fuck up and break these things you might pay a couple hundred bucks but they'll diagnose the problem and fix it and give you back your original device the only time that they actually like pull an apple and a samsung and like force you to get an entirely new one is if you're like it got ran over by a car you know and there's no way to just like swap a screen out and get the thing going again this this is the future i'm hugely enthusiastic about this you can you can do retro gaming you know like with the snap of a finger and your steam deck can live on it you can use streaming gaming services like um like nvidia's or amazon's luna xbox game pass for like 15 bucks a month i think you can just do cloud gaming through there on here without having to partition windows or any of that shit so that's emulators my, too. Yeah, yeah emulators dude yeah like i have i can play tony hawk's pro skater 3 and 4 on the gamecube and it looks great emulators on my pc always look janky but <laughs> because of the form factor because it doesn't have like the craziest resolution to its screens a lot of emulation looks really really good on this I've seen PlayStation 3, you know, get emulated on it. Like, people were playing Metal Gear Solid 4, which is a game I've always wanted to play. And now I probably can, which is, you know, kind of fun. Because, like, I don't have a PlayStation 3, and I don't have that game on hand. And it's not like they're ever going to you know, be able to emulate it any other way. But, yeah, I recommend getting this for yourself or, you know, you know asking, putting it on your Christmas list. Because the, the, the day that I bought this fucking thing... Valve rolled out their, their like spring sale and dropped the price on it. And instead of giving yeah. me the discount, they just gave me store credit. So I I, like, I bought Sekiro and uh, mm. I, I bought Hades so that I could have it on there and a, and a few other games. But I have a rule that I'm going to be hewing to, which is that I, if I install a game on it, I have to beat it if I've never beaten it before. Because otherwise I'm just going to play the game of ooh I'll just, I wonder what this is like you know and I'll never yeah. actually do anything but just install and uninstall games but yeah yeah I've been very just to uh, cap it off I've been very tempted to get one because I mean essentially from what I can tell these things are a more powerful Nintendo Switch with the games that you actually want to play you know that's what um, and man, that I have a switch and that thing is really starting to show its age. And yeah. I've heard that, uh, that these are pretty fantastic. These, uh, steam decks. Cause yeah, that's the thing. Like, uh, like you can be a power user and get as much as you can out of a, as a, as a, as a switch and as you would out of a PC. And uh, like valve really is, was onto something when they, realized oh this is what we should be fucking doing instead of making those consoles that they were trying to make those steam machines or like mm -hmm. even vr vr never really felt like the thing to me but this does i could realistically take my steam deck to the lake with me and yeah. just bring like a, a my dock and my cameras and my microphone and i could stream off my hotspot at the lake 
realistic. It's not really realistic, but it's it's something that could maybe happen. Because mm-hmm. like this, this, it's a computer, and it, like, and let me tell—I've never experienced Linux before. It's actually really nice. It, mm-hmm. It's it's really zippy, and it, it uh, and it's really intuitive too. And the the, the Steam Deck as a computer, because you can switch between desktop mode and the Steam Deck mode, basically. But the, sure. the desktop mode, really, really fucking cool. You can, yeah, like. I, I could work. I could like just pull up Google Chrome on my on it, and I could plug in a keyboard and I could you know work from home from that instead of a workstation. So it has a lot of appeal. But yeah. what was your pick of the week? I have lost the. What I, I accidentally got rid of a lot of our old graphics, so I don't have a pick of the week graphic. But what what was your pick of the week for episode one yeah. of Theater and Stream, Matt? Yeah, that's okay. Cause my pick of the week, you just put it up on the screen. Uh, John Wick chapter four, I'll, I'll, you know, use my, uh, the last couple moments here to sort of reiterate with this film that it, it really is the most narratively, um, successful film of these four films where, you know, a lot, a lot of times the older versions the one through three they feel like a a reason to string together action scenes and the plot is kind of meh but you know this film really does have a great through line and by the end of the film when it gets to that final the the final duel scene you really are invested in the stakes you really are um you know wanting to know what's going to happen and he does such a good job of stringing it out i mean that final duel scene is up there with the best scenes like it from you know the old um sergio leone westerns you know it, it's right up there with those and so go see this while it's still in theaters don't wait till it's on streaming don't wait till it's on your phone no uh go see it now yeah like as, as far as that goes this is one of one of those movies that you know christopher nolan is right about it needs to be seen on the silver screen unfortunately not it won't be ever, ever be seen on celluloid but get as close as possible to you know the a, a maximalist version of the experience that serves the intentions of the people who made it um yeah there's we're not going to see anything else like this this year probably maybe i'm wrong about that but as far as you know the, the legacies of westerns anti-heroes and action you know like 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 martial arts movies go like this is the 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 blender fusion of of all time and it 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 works in every respect when it maybe shouldn't no matter how silly no matter how gratuitous and excessive it always finds a way to give you more and that's why you should see it it is also my pick and with that we'll say thank you this is theater and stream that that is uh, Matt Miller. I am Chuck Crane. You'll be able to find us, you know, of course, on YouTube here, and on you know, various streaming platforms. You know, beginning with like Amazon, um, Spotify, and eventually, once we get all our ducks in a row, on iTunes and you know even Google's podcast platform. But you know, look look ahead to that. Check us out on the social media links that we'll be including below, and you know, have yourself a good week and watch some good movies. One more thing. Um, we also um, should have mentioned this earlier, probably, but we are going to begin uploading our episodes on Monday nights. So you are actually probably seeing this on a Monday night if you're watching yeah. it. And so get used to that, I guess, going forward. I think it's just going to work better for us 
um, as far as getting eyes on our uh, videos and also um, just for the people watching it because you know the thing is nobody really wants to watch a movie review podcast on the morning of their day off you know yeah. on the morning of their their first day off their weekend so we, we, we're kind of acknowledging that fact and so yeah monday nights going forward yeah is the, the the fact of the matter is all you people are you know nursing hangovers or yeah <laughs> or, or doing other things you're playing froth or you know doing cross-country skiing it's a saturday morning having brunch you know like so yeah we are gonna you know, shift things up a little bit and in the future if you know we get enough of a an interest for it we may do a live streaming component you know at some point but we'll we'll let you guys you know you know come before we build it you know, in that way but like anyways take care and uh, have a good week yep see ya